My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. Okay, so we're going to talk today about um, the artistic process and um, not only bring in Jung, because we always bring in Jung, because he had very set ideas, but maybe bring in our own approach, because I think that's what we're doing that is a bit different from maybe uh, what a lot of other people are putting out there in terms of uh, Jungian thought. Uh, so both of them together, I think, are interesting. So first, let's just talk about Jung himself and his conflicted view of art. Uh, I say conflicted because, again, one of the things about Jung is he certainly contradicts himself. But I, I think there was a battle within Jung between, first of all, he gave, he gave great uh, great power to artists in the sense that they were the translators of, of archetypal images that were necessary for uh, maybe progressing the human story or for bringing out uh, primordial images that, that, that were hidden in the unconscious and they needed to be reworked, resuscitated, uh, brought forth in a new form. So he, there was no, I mean, he was definitely very, uh, very uh, uh, aware that art mattered. But I think where he stumbled is uh, being a victim, and, and all of us are to some degree uh, this way, of looking at what was around him in his own time and maybe um, not understanding or not appreciating. So there are two famous essays that are included in the Collected Works, uh, Volume 15, on uh, one is on Picasso, one is on Joyce, uh, where he struggles with both of them in different ways. Although with Joyce, he eventually does write this letter to Joyce, uh, basically saying uh, that, you know, how much he appreciates his his Ulysses, even though he struggled for years to read it. And by the way, in that regard, he is not different from anyone who's ever uh, tried to read Ulysses because it is a really difficult work. And, uh, you know, so much is packed in there. But the fact that he struggled that the reason he even wrote something about it is because he was asked to write something about it. And that's interesting in itself. It just reminds me of today how many people are asked to write things because they have an expertise in a specific area and then they're invited and then they comment. And then they fall into the trap of like floundering around as they try to bring whatever thoughts. Now, in his case, he is responding to Freud's notion that art is always an expression of an artist's neurotic uh, stance in life. And so he doesn't like that definition of art, not true art. He, he likes to, art is symbolic and large and connective and feeling, like not feeling as emotion, but connecting you to a larger reality. So I've been blithering away and blabbing away. It's your turn to jump in and just uh, uh, tell me what comes up when, when I'm talking about this. I would think my idea about art and neuroses, I think is, <clears throat> neuroses is the result of not expressing what needs to be expressed or not connecting to what needs to be connected to. Uh, so I see it maybe inversely. <laughs> Yeah. I guess from what from what Freud was saying or what his right. attitude about art is because you know <clears throat> you can talk to any artist in any form you know I think I've referenced uh, Georgia O'Keeffe before commenting on uh, the necessity uh, she does what she does because she feels it's necessary and um, you know there's I, I guess you might say there's um in, in, in individuals, there's perhaps a, 
a drive that needs to be expressed or uh, otherwise if that's not directed through art, no telling how else that can come out. So that's kind of the way that I see it. But I'm wondering though, uh, let, let's, let's, let's go back a bit. So a neurosis is often the result of complex, right? Yes. Um, so, so it is true that our complexes drive a lot of what we do because that's the way that's the glasses with which we are mm -hmm. seeing the world. So, you know, I may be attracted to writing a specific type of novel because I'm driven to resolve. And in fact, that is exactly what seems to have happened in my life so far. I am driven to resolve a fundamental conflict I have within complex. And so I work it out on the page. So partially what we are doing when we create anything is we are attracted to certain subjects, certain viewpoints, certain canvases in terms of I'll give you a world builder with words or because you are being driven by your neurosis, like maybe not neurosis might be too strong a word in that it. Um, in fact, I would say that it's healing. What you're saying is actually true, that the way it doesn't manifest as a bigger thing is that you can transform it uh, on the page, in my case, or with, with music in your case, right? Right. The difference I hear between Freud and Jung in this aspect is that from the Jungian, I think, perspective, I could be wrong about this, but that the neurosis, you're, you're transforming the neurosis in some way, rather than it just being a pure expression of it. Right. I think there, there's, there's a transformation of it. So right. it's not just like, um, I, I don't know, I, I just hear, I, I don't, I, I find the, the Freudian view pretty problematic here. Yeah, well, I mean, Freud, we, we sometimes do find problematic in general, and certainly Jung did, which is why he wrote what he did, because he thought true art had a larger, a larger kind of uh, reality behind it. But then, of course, the problem always is going to fall and it's going to fall for everybody on what side, well, who, who defines what true art is. If you look at literary, um, and I can speak more to the, to the book world than I can to, to your world, but if you look at what has um, survived, uh, you know who's made it survive? It's what Harold Bloom, the great uh, literary scholar, talked about when he said the anxiety of influence, which is something we could talk about too in terms of uh, work. Um, he said that the, the writers who survive have had an incredible impact on the writers who followed. So when you read Joyce, you have to know a little bit about Dante, because if you don't know what Dante did, Joyce is going to seem more impenetrable. Uh, same thing with Virginia Woolf. She also referred to Dante. Dante, in fact, looms large for a lot of writers. Shakespeare looms incredibly large for a lot of writers. Cervantes with, with Don Quixote. So you look back and you think it is the referencing back. And we talked about Moby Dick uh, the previous time. Moby Dick was not recognized as the great American novel till the early 20th century, well after Melville had, Melville had died. By the way, um, that's the novel. That's Jung also thought that was the great American novel. And he pointed out that, I think rightly, that... Uh, Melville thought he was writing one story, but he was writing a completely different story. And I think using that novel, at least for me, is a great example of how you're writing a fishing story with a lot of facts in it about whaling. And yet he, 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 what emerges from there is this incredible archetypal battle that, uh, that you can only retrospect. And with the, with the help of deaf psychology, you can see this is an amazing story. But it's not the story that Melville might have thought he was telling. I mean, yes, of course, it is a story, but then there's so much more, right? So in the book world, it is really referencing. So if you look at modern writers, uh, the ones who are, you know, if somebody said to me, who's, who's going to survive from the 20th century, I would, late 20th century, I would say, well, you know what, Salman Rushdie, great mythological writer, uh, has written and, and references a lot of uh, the writers before, highly symbolic, highly mythological, because the mythological really does bring to life 
the larger archetypal world, probably Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Again, both very well recognized. Marquez won the, uh, won the Nobel Prize. Rushdie is very, very celebrated. But both of them have very large canvases. And I could be wrong. We'll see who influences what, because most books disappear and the books that are very big in a given age, um, you know, 50 years later, nobody's ever heard them heard of them again. But if we are to take his definition, and, and here's a great example. He loves Goethe's Faust Part Two. Well, that's impenetrable. Most people don't read it, and you certainly can't stage it. I mean, that would be insane. But it has had an effect on what happened after. And I'll tell you what line it did. Uh, at the end of that, um, there is a hail to the eternal feminine that shows up which is really interesting. You already see the realm of the mothers in there, that shows up in there. And you get a sense that the feminine is being articulated already, and this is early on in the 19th century. And then Wagner picks it up and his heroine is going to be the one who saves the world by bringing the ring back and to delivering the ring back to the Nibelungen. And so uh, the, you just, you're seeing that uh, the ideas, while they may not be read, they have somehow infiltrated and they've spread and people refer to them even, even if they don't know. Uh, that they're doing so. So I don't know in music, I can certainly in classical music, I, I can more or less see where it went because it basically ends in a specific way with specific composers where it changes radically. I don't know. Okay, so if you had to say, uh, similarly, who are the the um, who are the the musicians that most influence modern music? And I mean, that, that would have to change, right? Because there's so many of them, but who would be influencing? Who are the influencers? Who, who are people anxious about in terms of the, the, the fathers? <laughs> you know what I mean? Anxiety of influence out there. Are, are you talking about currently? Like yeah. that that are influencers now or, or that have the influences from the past? So if you put together a bunch of really well-known musicians today, and you looked at their music and you said, okay, what I can see the influence of so-and-so, who would these people be? Like, who would the, who would the people, I, the Beatles, I would take it, would show up? I'm talking about popular mu music right now. Yeah. Uh, first, first of all, I think a large amount of it rests on blues music. And if you think of blues music, you know, I think, I think of, uh, Campbell's joyful participation in the world of sorrows. I mean, that, sorrows that, of the world, yeah, yeah, sorrows of the world, yeah. Oh, yeah. And everything else, I, as far as what's been popularized in music, <clears throat> flows from that. Also, flows from country music as well. And then the, you get the Beatles, which is kind of a blending of the two, the Rolling Stones, and you have jazz. And jazz is much more free of form, and so you. But you see a lot of that mixed up into popular music. And uh, I definitely would say, you know, um, the Beatles are still hev heavily, are still heavy influencers today. You know, a band from more of my generation is, uh, is uh, Radiohead and they've left their mark. Jeff Buckley, of course, Pink Floyd, you know, but those again, go back to my tastes. Right. But but there's something there's certainly they etched something out. Right. I feel. Do you think it is possible for a popular musician to create the kind of archetypal connection to primordial images that Jung is suggesting the artist is really here to do to somehow bring to the to the consciousness something that compensates for something that is largely unconscious in the human psyche at this point in time? So are they are they do they have the capacity? to do that? Or is that just something that 
even today by the incredible availability of everything that that's just not going to fall on the on the and and you know we can think of films films do seem to create compensatory situations for sure oh, right one of my favorite bands certainly did uh and that was the doors uh because of right. you have to look at the time that they existed and they existed during the height of you know love and light the mid to late 1960s and they were not love and light and and what they did was they actually opened doors for other musicians to express that same to 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 dabble in that same realm kind of the the darkness beneath it all mm-hmm. uh you know the, i don't think anyone seeks out to do that no he would he would agree with you by the way so yeah that's important that you're channeling without knowing you're channeling almost or else it's right. consciously directed which goes against the very idea that you're bringing something to the foreground that uh, you didn't know existed and no one else did as well. Or you didn't know that needed to be brought to the foreground, right? Or to consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Certainly. I, I, can't really, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head that's going on right now at this moment where I feel like that's being expressed. Right, right. But I can think of it in the past. Right, but I think... That is a little bit like whatever anybody's publishing today. We need a bit of a distance to be able to see, yes. oh, that was being brought to consciousness. Here's my example, the late 19th century Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is an incredible psychological writer. He is showing up at the very same time that the whole notion of an unconscious is being articulated in a very particular way. And he is writing, uh, his novels are amazing in the, in the sense that you are you are going into a psychological state that had not, in my view, before that, you just couldn't see. But it was almost like it, it reflects the time. It is also the same time that you see Wagner's operas, which are incredibly psychological in the way that Jung would have understood them. So I wonder, but you can't see that at the time. You see it later. You look back and you think, oh, at this period of time, certain things were coming to consciousness. Now, I'm a big fan of the 19th century in terms of the uh, writing. So there was a French writer called Emile Zola, who wrote a lot of great uh, social camp, big social canvas uh, novels. In other words, you really understood uh, crime in France. You really understood political revolution, but they don't have the emotional psychological depth that Dostoevsky does. So somehow he was accessing, uh, it's often been said he's an epileptic, he's dealing with, with uh, some really deep stuff himself. He had an incredible life. He was almost shot, uh, executed by the czar before he, was, before he was pardoned at the last minute. So it was an incredible life, right? But he did seem to have a natural ability to to really go in the depths, just like Melville, who was writing actually around the same time, uh, and extract something for humanity that that just nobody else could do. So there is something about some people, and still bring form because we know that you, you, know, you can go dipping in there, but if you come out and there's no form to it, then nobody can make sense of it. So it's not it's not going to be as valuable. But you need a story, you need some sort of coherent narrative that people can follow. Um, but yeah, so I don't, so I think neither one of us can determine what, what, what is coming to consciousness now that needs to be, we don't know because we, we don't have the, the benefit of hindsight where we can say, Hey, that wasn't there before it only appeared later. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm just more asking in terms of, we can look back and say, well, popular music seems to have been very much influenced by what happened in the sixties specifically. And then the way it developed and, and beyond that, we can't, you know, or, or our own age, we cannot judge. I'm thinking of films though, and the compensatory function. And I'm always go back to avatar because we have a new avatar about to be yes. released. And I remember, I mean, I thought it was quite the, 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 the script, I thought was quite silly in many ways, the, the actual writing, but the story 
resonated so much with people, right? That I thought, well, there's got to be something. Why are people resonating on the left, especially young men? Again, young men, right? And I thought, well, it, 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 again, we talk about a it was presenting a natural world of you know blue blue people who seem to be more connected to the earth. It seemed a very feminine world, and I wonder if that is why it had this enormous reaction. What was your reaction to that film, out of interest? The the first thing. All right, so two levels. <clears throat> I really enjoyed Avatar. First thing I, I, I thought was, well, this is kind of a reinventing of uh, of a Western. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the second thing was, uh, it felt very, it felt very archetypal in that you, well, th these people that are very connected to life and very the blue people, very connected to life very connected to everything around them. And you have these outsiders that are coming and plugging themselves in to that uh, and, and living through that. I don't know. I thought it was, you know, for me, I kind of thought it was going to be like the next more kind of like what Lucas did with Star Wars. I thought it was going to have that type of impact because I, I thought the metaphor was so rich. It did have that impact. I remember, don't you remember this? That there were, this is before people were really on their phones all the time and you had things like Facebook, but there were chat rooms where young men missed the blue people. I, that's what drew my attention. And I have to admit, I'm a bit biased against it only because by the time I saw it, my kids were really young. So I didn't get around to see it until a little bit later. And it had been so hyped. And you know what happens when something is so hyped, you yep. go in there predisposed to think it's trash. So I'd probably have to give that another, but I even recognize watching it. You know, I didn't like the fact that it was so blatantly the military and the broken man and it seemed, but those right. are archetypes, but yes. that is how archetypal yes. things work, right? So I was just being, I think, grumpy at the time. But but I look, I'm much more interested in what is resonating with people. Star Wars resonates with people. The Lord of the Rings resonates with people. If it didn't, they wouldn't be lining up dressed up as, you know, uh, whatever they dress up, Darth Vader. I mean, I've stood in those lines. People really connect. And if it's connecting, then it's telling you something about the archetypes that 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 uh, it's it's dealing with. But the ones that are mythologically based, like Star Wars, like Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, like Avatar, I think they have a bigger pull. And I think because they somehow have latched on, it's a little bit. I feel a little bit cynical about this because George Lucas, of course, used uh, uh, Joseph Campbell's work, and you sense the the hand of Joseph Campbell on yeah. all of these series. I don't know if you do, but I think hmm. They have read the, because, you know, the, the cliche in writing is that you take a screenwriter's uh, course, and I've heard this, and it's always based on Joseph Campbell's work, and they charge you a ridiculous amount of money so you can use the archetypes. But they, at the end of the day, you can know the template, you can have the template, but it takes something else to actually bring it to life in a way that people respond to it uh, in any way. switch to a, to our personal um, way of approaching things right and um we talked off off camera about some of the songs and how they came to be and the one that i'm really taken with is the one 
uh, and the angels are singing. Is it and the angels are uh, now are singing? And the angels, yes. And now yes. They, okay. Tell me about that story because I think that is a really great example of so many things coming together. So, I think it was I, I started that writing that song in the fall of two thousand two, and uh, you know I, I was I was in grad school and uh, I started developing songwriting and um, you know for some reason I something in me wanted to write kind of a, a, a gospel song but you know I felt or I, I guess I should say playing on the, the the guitar just playing around with a couple couple chords I I felt like a gospel song that's that's what I felt and so I started playing around with it and through those through those chords I was playing uh, I ended up writing what what felt like a gospel song and it was it was uh, basically a song that came out of it was images of uh, my brother that died in a car wreck just two years prior and the grief around that and so here I am playing my guitar, not expecting really anything, kind of just having this idea. And then I'm started to, be, I start to be flooded with, um, I would say this was emotion, but also feeling. And not only in doing that, it, when I'm writing that song, another piece of it comes into play. And, and that is recalling a dream that I'd had a couple years before about my brother where he, he visits me from the afterlife and gets in the car with me while we're driving. And he tells me what it's like on the other side. And, and that's what the, the chorus of the song becomes and the angels now are singing. And this came completely spontaneously without, you know, planning it. I didn't sit down and say, well, I need to process some grief. So uh, I'm going to write a song um, no, I was just playing around with my guitar and uh, something spontaneous, spontaneously came out through, through emotion and, and through feeling. Well, it's a very powerful song. Of the ones that you wrote, is that the one you most connected to or is it just or because, because of the circumstances or is it just? Yes, I would say so. The reason, you know, I say that because when I went into the studio to record, I had this powerful experience in the studio uh, after all the other musicians had played and I had played and, and, and had sung the main vocals. I went in to do, I wanted to create a sound with my voice that was like an angel that you can barely hear in, a, in parts of the song. And on the playback of that, uh, it was just so powerful and, and so emotional. I, you know, <laughs> I was sitting there crying in the studio because of what I was hearing in the visions that it was, it was bringing out. And uh, it, was, it was a mixture of grief and elation, joy. It was a mixture of all those things. And uh, so that's the most, not only probably the most powerful song I've written um, at the time that I was writing it and had the most powerful experience, but also when I went back to record it and, and fleshed uh, it's like amplifying a dream fleshed out 
other elements of it that uh, I got the full effect of it and what it what it what it became and, and how it affected me in the end. So right, yeah, right. It is very powerful. Well, we're going to be using it here so people can can hear it. But it is an incredibly powerful and beautiful beautiful song. Uh, how do you think that your own creative process has changed from then? To what you're doing now is there any just i mean of course we're all different so every time you approach new work you're a different person but is there anything about the process itself that is that is that has changed for you yeah for one there's a little bit more i, I think i bring a, a little bit more discernment to my process I, i'm more trusting of myself in the process and I, uh, I'm more patient with it. I remember one of the musicians I worked with when I was doing that album encouraged me in future songwriting to be more patient. And I took that to heart, especially with, with words, because, you know, the, the, the feeling is so strong behind music. And I, I felt at times that uh, I'd, I'd kind of cut corners and just put words down just to have something so I could say it was finished. And trusting, I trust the process more and I trust myself more. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like I get more to the heart of what's being, what needs to be expressed, because that's what I mean by the discernment. I'm I'm able to kind of hone in on better or more fully, I guess, would be the way Mm -hmm. to say it, on where it's going and and, uh, what I'm, what I'm doing. You know, I th- I'd say I'm more aware of of uh, how to approach it in a more free way, but also <laughs> also uh, you know more discerning, I guess I would say. So I've talked about my process with music, which I imagine is um, somewhat foreign, but I'm sure there's there's some similarities. But I can't really imagine myself. Or imagine the process of at least your experience of writing a novel. I'm not sure, like, that is a foreign idea to me. I mean, I, I'm a writer of sorts. I, I've written different things. But a novel, that process is so much different to me sitting here than it is with a song. And I've heard you talk about it before, how you just become completely immersed in your work. Can you... Can you explain a little bit about that? What that's what that's like for you? Yeah, I mean it's so different because each each novel I've written has been such a different experience. So I'll just quickly say that the first was definitely a family kind of. I think you mine your own autobiographical material in your first novel. That's just very common, and I was very young when I wrote that. And I want to get back to that because of you reading it and and what's happened in in terms of how important a reader is, and I'd want to get back to that because I want to ask you the same thing about music. But anyway, just just to talk about the process. Uh, and so that was the first one. And then the second one, I I really, it was, uh, it was a visit to a place. And I think that sometimes happens. People get inspired by different things. I had happened to be in the Yucatan. I was very inspired by the place. And then the story came to me. Both of those were very rooted in history, which is something I particularly love. That was just my academic background. And I love reading about historical periods. I really wish I had lived in a different historical period. In fact, the way I think makes me think sometimes in some ways, I would have been very comfortable in a more conservative kind of, not conservative in the way that I guess I'm very not conservative, but how would I say it? That I just love history. I just love the whole, the whole idea of, of being in another time and place. 
Um, the last one, the, the, the one that's about to be published, that, that was a completely different experience. That's never quite happened that way because the first two took a while. I mean, they didn't take a long time. I'm a pretty quick writer. Once I decide, I just let my imagination take off. I will say that the first one, there are scenes in there that came from active imagination exercises. When I didn't know where the the uh, where the uh, play thing was going, I actually allow my I just would go into the state and like, okay, tell me. And then I'd see, I'd see something play out. I think, oh my God, that's what's happening. Uh, the second one was more consciously directed, I think, uh, than the first. Um, but both I think were consciously directed, but they're still like, you just got these ideas. You don't know where they're coming from. And they, the second one, I had been studying opera a lot. So I set it as an opera, but uh, I made, made believe like you're actually watching an opera. And I realized that the reason that I did is because I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to have a love story in it unless there could be an operatic theme because I hate love stories. So this brings me to my third, um, my third novel, which is the one that now in between there were a couple that I tried and did not work. And you know when something doesn't work, right? And How do you know? I, no, we just know. You just just absolutely know. I mean, I finished them. They're completely finished novels. One was set in London. Um, and, it, and I just, I know. I know that it, because someone said, well, you can publish it. I said, no, I don't want to publish it because it's not what I want. And the other one was my first attempt at what I'm going to pick up next. And I hope I do a better job. But both of them, they lacked a certain, how can I put it? It's like, a, it's like it, they, they didn't have uh, maybe the feeling for me, and this is only for me, right? It's not emotion. It's that feeling of connection to something that that makes me feel like, oh, I'm connected. They didn't connect me. And that's because I was not connected as I was writing it. And I was always, I was also trying to consciously direct something too much. We go back to, you have to be careful about that because when you do, it doesn't necessarily work the way you want it to. Uh, also, the one thing about me, like you, and this is very odd for writers, especially, uh, I don't, someone said to me of the because she, there's a person who's read everyone Geneva my friend has read every one of my novels my failed attempts and my not failed attempts and she made a comment reading the last one that she doesn't every novel she's read of mine doesn't it seems completely different from the last one like I'm not mm -hmm. writing it just isn't it isn't in my nature to keep writing the same novel over and over again which is by the way why I stopped writing after the second novel because both of them had this Spanish kind of a flair to them they were set in Spanish-speaking countries of course now I've done the same thing but I've, I've mixed in the English in a different way I was just inspired in a different way when I was younger and then I went into this whole Jungian thing but the third one and I want, do want to talk about it because it was such a completely different experience and I've talked about it before but I was just felt like this 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 idea came into my head and it was after watching Pride and Prejudice and me thinking well how do these how do these two how would they be in modern day what would they be arguing about because there is something about those two characters that they don't meet and that's what makes them interesting. And then they do meet, you realize actually they're quite similar. And, and so I was sort of, I was wandering around with my dog thinking, you know, playing around with it. And then an, a story started coming and not really a story. This has never actually quite happened. The entire, the entire kind of uh, the whole thing, like I would just get entire scenes that were chronological. In other words, I knew what was happening next. So that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But I realized in retrospect that what I was doing was something that I couldn't do in real life. For 12 years, I tried to write a nonfiction book and couldn't pull it off. I just couldn't because my, my head always, my brain always takes me to story, narrative. I, I just, I, I tried, but then, you know, I get too lyrical and I start, you know, going off and I knew that I couldn't do it. Somehow this book brings together nonfiction fiction, brings together male, female, it brings together so many things. And the the writing style is so radically different from what I've written before. What I've written mm -hmm. before is really influenced by the fact that I have this tendency, this is going to sound strange, 
because my first language is Spanish, even though I, I started speaking English very young, I was seven when I immigrated to Canada, and I, all my university uh, studies were in English, and I've been speaking English, but I, I, I went back a lot. I did high school in Spain and stuff. I have this weird habit when I'm writing, uh, except for this last novel, to switch my brain on, brain off. And, and somehow I'm writing in English, but I sound Spanish, if that makes sense. In other words, the rhythms of the Spanish language enter my writing. I can't stop it. I, I, it's like I'm going, wait a minute, I'm starting to sound like a, uh, like I'm writing in translation. And I, I'm not the only person to, to state this, that there are people who, when you're when you have two languages, that this can often happen. But there's another thing. I privilege Spanish as a writing language because it is so much richer in adjectives, so much uh, more meandering, so much more emotional. At this, by the same token, I'm also more embarrassed by it because it's so much it's so much richer in adjectives because it's so much more emotional. And because I have to say, I feel like living in an English-speaking culture, you are made to feel embarrassed. And also living in a world, and this has become the thing that has emerged from the writing of that book, that fundamentally... I wrote under the apprehension that the, the world is made up of masculine values and that if you're being too emotional or too full of adjectives and your, your sentences meander for two pages without end, that you're somehow, um, you're not going to be accepted. And in fact, the fact is there is something to that in a certain way. It's not considered as serious. Uh, and certainly the, the great masters of this, Marquez, would certainly be considered. But even he, sometimes people say, well, you know, he has a lot of the... Uh, a lot of these stories have the flavor of the telenovela in it. And the fact is, uh, telenovelas are just these great unfolding stories of the human psyche, you know, uh, and they're very, very fairy tale like. Don't you leave your So this this last novel has been so interesting to me because it has brought me together in a weird way. And that's maybe why I had to write it. It's not lyrical. It's not. It is really a much more direct form. But I also wrote it very quickly because of that. I think it just needed to be expressed. And so, yeah, I would say that they're all very different. And then the one I'm, I'm incubating, I'll call it incubating, yes, right now is a completely, completely different thing yet. So I don't think there's one thing. Uh, but okay, there is one thing, and I'm going to go back to what you commented on. And some in my group, they, they also commented. So every time you make a comment about anything that I write, I go, "For God's sake, stop it!" <laughs> I don't say that. I go, "Wait, I've got to think about this." So let's let's go back to a comment you made, which I thought was brilliant. And and I go back to when the Bitter Taste of Time is released, and I got it reviewed in a whole bunch of places, and you know, and people made all sorts of comments. I wish you had reviewed it and made this comment because it got me thinking a lot. And it, it it's with respect to a story that appears in this in this novel that is actually a family story, a story that uh, I heard when I was living in Spain as a high school student because my grandmother was a great storyteller, and she would talk about this man, the traveler from Madrid, and even that's archetypal, a traveler who comes with mm -hmm. a story. Okay. And this particular story, and we joke about cats, right? Because this particular story was about how he traveled all over Spain. I don't know what he was selling, but he would show up at these different places and tell these stories of his travels in Spain. And this would go back to stories that would be told. My grandmother was born in 1905. So it would be in stories she heard when she, 1915. Okay, so pretty, pretty early on. 
And uh, she she uh, told this particular story that would horrify me because what she would do is in Spain everybody would get together in those days and you know everybody got together had some wine and got and and you know the lights would start flickering at some point because the part of Spain I come from had high winds and sometimes that would happen and so then the real stories really started coming out and this one was about. He'd come freaked out because he said he had been in this house that he always visited in Madrid and he noticed the cat and the cat was staring the, the at him. Cat. The cat in the family yeah. house. This is a story my grandmother said this traveler told. Um, and the cat was staring at him and he suddenly had a chill going down his spine and he thought, this cat is not a cat. I have to hear my grandmother tell it. And she, he looked at the cat and he said, what are you doing here? And of course, he didn't say it with words. He communicated, you know, whatever way you communicate with cats, you would know. I would know less. <laughs> anyway, he communicated with cats, with a cat. And the cat communicated, I'm here. I'm waiting until I can take the last one with me. And in the old days in Spain, because there's such a Catholic country today, you will not find this, there was always holy water at the front of the house in a, in a, in a little cup. So he merely ran, got the holy water, and, and uh, threw some on the cat. And the cat said, hey, stop, you're burning me. And uh, and anyway, he eventually basically threw the whole enough holy water that the cat basically disappeared. The interesting thing was when he asked the family, well, how long has this cat been around? The family said, oh, generations. He's been here with my grandparents, which, of course, makes no sense. <laughs> and so my grandmother would tell this story. And we always joke, well, we can't have a cat because you'd be waiting for our souls. You know, it's a, it a common thing. But when you read it in, in uh, Cecilia, one of the uh, characters in my novel tells this, um, uh, the story, you talked about how the cat is a great, that, that story is a great expression of what happens in families that we're all passing cats. <laughs> we're passing from generation to the same cat gets passed off from generation to generation. And that's a brilliant comment because it's exactly what happens in families. We're not passing, we are passing stories down the line. Well, we're passing stories of our wounding or traumas that get passed down the line, our mistaken beliefs. And it never even occurred to me to look at that story in that way, not only from what I'd written, but what I what the, the origin of the story. So that's one of the things that, that I thought, oh, you'd make a great reviewer. You could actually bring some depth because sometimes the reviewing is like, oh my God. And we've all done it. So I shouldn't criticize. It's a hard, hard piece of uh, work. Second thing you mentioned, which my group coincidentally mentioned this. So I had a meeting with my Sophia group and they said, you know, the last novel, and I won't get too much into it because. But they, they pointed out something about the last novel that uh, seems obvious now that they pointed it out. But you pointed it out about the first novel in a different way, about Maria, the, the central character, being very controlling and not able to release. And what I've noticed, and this is why I've always told people, please, for God's sake, write a novel. Like, just write a novel. I know it seems really daunting. But you don't have to write a very large novel. and It doesn't have to make sense. But I think what happens when you put things on the page, at least for me, it reveals you to yourself. And one of the things that, that was pointed out is every female character in that I've created is um, a main female character has an issue around control. And I think, well, okay, that's the feminine within me, right? I mean, all the characters are you. And of course, in Bitter Taste of Time, there are you know five or six, I can't remember how many, that's how, how long ago I wrote it, but there are about five or six female characters. And I would say they're each a facet of my personality, but the central character, the ruling principle, the ruler is Maria. And Maria definitely has that. So it's just interesting that I think for, for a novelist, and I don't know if you get this with songs, I like to hear if you do, the reaction people have often, again, is, well, first of all, it reveals a lot about them too, because what they're noticing is telling me a bit about their own psychology. That's number one. So it's always fascinating when I used to do the book club circuit, you know, you'd be invited and you'd give a talk and people would ask you and, you know, they would find the, this one thing to talk about in the novel, which I 
you know, was nothing. And I think, oh, that's really interesting. But does that happen to you as well with songs? Is it uh, is it something that people making comments sometimes you think, wait, I didn't even even think about it that way. I think with with songs, it's more like me um, inhabiting. Well, I was going to say inhabiting the characters, but maybe it's more like them inhabiting me. What I hear people say is not in that same, not in that same way. And I think part of that is because I'm kind of a, uh, I'm kind of vague in, in my songwriting in, in, in my lyrics. I think, I think there's a such, there's, there's just a quality of being vague there and, and, it's open. It's more like poetry. So it's difficult to do the same thing that you could do with a novel. But what I hear people say is, oh, I, this is a completely different side of you. This mm-hmm. is a completely different aspect of your personality I didn't know existed. What are they referring to when they say that? Specifically, what are they seeing that they're not seeing in the Daily J? Like, what, what is different to them? Uh, they're seeing someone that's not so I would say not so buttoned down not Mm. so controlled they yeah not so controlled bigger okay uh, 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 a bigger sense of who I am Mm -hmm. more human Mm -hmm. you know that's especially the experience that I had when I first performed for for people in my grad school program was it was just like you know who you know, he would say, I had no idea that could come out of that, you know, that type of mm, thing. Right. Um, <laughs> there's kind of an incongruence there. And, and uh, of course, that's continued, you know, you wear your hats, you know, when you go to work, you put on a hat. And so that's what people know you as. But no, I even think with my own family, that it's, it's given insights, you know, people that have known me my whole life, that it gives them windows into things that I wouldn't be able to show them otherwise. Yeah, I think that does give you a release. That's very true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then friends and a whole bunch of other people. feel about people asking you about your work do you feel comfortable or uncomfortable when people asking me about my work yeah not asking but maybe probing into a specific song if I were to say I want you to dissect this song tell me exactly what this is about does that make you feel comfortable or you wouldn't even know how to answer that or it doesn't a lot of times I wouldn't know how to answer it it depends on the song right it it really does like we just talked the one that I just discussed you know that was fairly easy yeah um but there's others that are still that have more of a mystery even to me hmm. and those are usually the bigger ones right um, the latest one that you just did uh the one what is it called like did you have uh, the, gathering. the title? gathering okay so w- the, is that a mystery to you or have you figured that one out the, the reason uh, you 
Well, I don't know with songs like that, that there's mm -hmm. ever a time where you just figure it out completely because there are songs that I've written that I wrote 20 years ago that I'll hear again and I'll be like, Oh, it'll hit me differently. Right. That's true. And there'll be, there'll be, so the, the circumstances under which I wrote that song, the gathering, um, I was in a lot of <laughs> physical and mental anguish and uh i'm glad you can laugh about it now that's pretty good <laughs> uh, yeah yeah uh, kidney stones aren't fun no they're not you know <laughs> it's not no and this was a three-week ordeal yeah so a lot of it there is a I, I guess i would say the way this this song operates within my psyche is more of a big picture thing um i could go through each line and dissect it but i i think that would that no, that kills it. I'm more interested in the yeah. big picture, just out of interest. What, what's the, what's the? Um, I mean, we'll eventually also use it in one of our episodes. Well, but certainly, transforming suffering, yeah, on multiple levels. You know, that song probably is a, uh, um, a you know, a, a signpost for me in some ways of of um coming to a greater awareness of of myself of my journey of things that have been uh you know swimming around in my unconscious uh but i, I guess it would just be simply the most simple simple way i can state it is a transform transformation of suffering yeah yeah and i think actually a lot of what feels <clears throat> artistic work is actually an unconscious maybe need to transform something and often it is uh, something that uh, you know is painful and it helps it really does help so i'm, I'm not surprised you said that it's a uh, i'm just wondering because people do always ask and i i can't quite ever pin it down to but, but i mean a novel is a very long thing it's not a song in that you know it has a it's a song can be i think summarized a bit easier than an entire novel so maybe that's the problem i don't know you, you get a lot more in, in a novel. <clears throat> I mean, let's face it, uh, in a novel, I think you are dealing with the, the senses more or the, the this, I mean, you're dealing with detail right. quite a bit. And, and so maybe there's some, some things that appear to you that are more crystallized. Right, right. If, the, if that makes yeah. sense. No, it does. I, it's interesting you should say that when I was um, in Jungian analysis with the, the one person that I yeah, it was wonderful. Siva Sineski, she um she read my first novel. I was just working on my second as I was working with her. And she said, uh, she said, you know, Bea, I see your your sensation function showing up big time in this novel, <laughs> uh, which is not my strongest. It doesn't, uh, but she said, I really see because you know you're, you're descriptive of food and you're going into it. I said, Oh, okay. Thought it was interesting. Her her view was that. And she worked with, you know, a lot of young analysts work with artists. She said that often what the person is trying to grasp is that inferior function or that function that isn't as strong. And uh, she saw it showing up. She said it's almost like you go to that to to um, discover it. And in, it's in, in that work because you lose yourself a bit that you can actually bring it in. Uh, and so my, my novels are not been, it's always, people always comment there's so many details in them. Just kind of funny um and and you know descriptive of you know sounds and smells and and they, yes they, they they what you would associate with sensation 
And uh, so that that's interesting to me. And I wonder if that's what happens with you as well, that you're accessing uh, your inferior function that we, mm-hmm. or, or a part of you that you're not as comfortable with maybe in daily life, but shows up there. I, I think so. <clears throat> really, you know, I, I feel like, so there's, there, there's, there's two, two paths and the one, the one path with, with my career and what I call my career, I don't know how much of a career it is. That's um, it. Some music. Yeah. You're producing great music. That's it. Well, well, no, I'm, I'm, I just mean my, uh, I'm talking about what the, the face that I've shown mm-hmm. uh, people over, you know, the last 20 years or so and what most people know me as, uh, which is much more controlled mm-hmm. and versus, versus the music where one thing that I would say, you know, I think it would be fair to say that feeling may be my inferior function in that's what I was talking about with discernment. So the thing that leads me to the guitar is a feeling. Mm. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's something it's not necessarily emotion, no, but it's something inside that uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to express, and I feel that when you asked me how I've grown with it, is that I'm able to fine tune that feeling maybe more in a direction. Does that make sense? Because yeah, it these, does. Yeah. Th- these feelings have qualities to them. Yeah, and, sure, of course, of course. And so there's a, there's, there's, so I can see now in just talking right now, why feelings actually considered uh, a masculine function. Feeling is considered a masculine. You mean a judging. uh, I mean, a not a, not a masculine. A judging Judging function. function. Yeah. 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 Um, Because, you know, for, for me to, to take that feeling and, speak it in or you know speak it into existence whatever in its its purest form is the goal right right yeah do you know i'm, I'm just gonna this has turned out to be one of our longer episodes i will wrap it up with this do you realize that in both our cases the 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 thing we've signaled uh allows us to write is that when we're not writing control becomes a really big issue now right. or writing whether it's songs or, or novels but i wonder if that's actually quite widespread that the thing about doing any creative thing is that you lose control if you don't lose control then the thing isn't working because you're too conscious in your creation it is in the moment that you just you know let it just come out in whatever way it wants to that the whole process actually works at least for me and i'm suspecting you too um, so it's interesting that maybe that is part and parcel of what the creative process is all around. Is that all about for everybody, not just for you and me? I don't know. We'll have to ask. Maybe somebody can tell us if they're doing something completely different. Let us know. Thanks for listening. The music you've been listening to is from Jay Rettlesberger's album, Harvesting James. You can find his music at the links provided in the show notes. There, you'll also find links to anything else we've mentioned during our conversation. Thanks also to our producer, Andrew Graham. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating so others will find us as well. For now, until next time. I can hear you.
就黑。